Support for this show is brought to you by Instill. Our friends at Instill really understand what it means to build and manage relationships in a holistic and human-first way. The platform's advanced UX design and real-time analytics, smooth donor management to make it easy for you to connect every supporter to the impact of your work. To learn more, head on over to www.instill.io backslash Mallory. We need that space of people really understanding their impacts. And we need that space of even more people coming from the experiences of the communities that they are actually from working in and serving in. Welcome back to episode 18.3 of What the Fundraising. I'm your host, Mallory Erickson, and this podcast is for impact leaders and change makers who are looking to fundamentally change the way they lead and fundraise. Thank you to our amazing sponsors over at Donor Perfect for making this special mini-series possible. In this week's three-episode series, we are focusing on political organizing and political fundraising through an equity lens, and it's filled with stories, strategies, and tools that I wish I would have heard earlier in my career. In this episode, I interview the incredible Taylor Stewart. Taylor is the Vice President of Organizing Leadership at Leadership for Educational Equity, and her work centers on developing the leadership of LEA members to build powerful ecosystems in their communities filled with elected officials, policymakers, advocacy leaders, and organized constituencies. In this conversation, Taylor talks about what organizing really means, how to find that sweet spot between self-interest and community advocacy, and the ways we as society can become more anti-racist from our office and our homes to our policies. Taylor also shares her personal story working as a high school government teacher and how her career shifted to law, fundraising, and working for educational equity in the nonprofit space. There are so many important lessons throughout this episode, so let's dive in. Welcome, everyone. I am thrilled to be here today with Taylor Stewart, the VP of Organizing at Lee. We have had so many amazing conversations about Lee and the work that you all do this week, and I'm just thrilled to be here with you today. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So why don't we just start with, you were sharing a little bit before we hit record around your experience, what brings you to your work today, but I would love for you to share that with everyone. Absolutely. So I started my career as an educator in Baltimore City Schools. And I fundamentally believe that as an educator, you also have this responsibility to your students to be an organizer in many ways, because you are building relationships with them. I was teaching high school government and had my students asking me all the time, well, you said that this is how it's supposed to work, but I don't think it works that way. And they weren't wrong. And so as a teacher, it was also my responsibility to say, and there are ways that people have been able to change and fix things that are not working and living up to values. And so that was the first three years of my career in professional work was being there alongside my students and getting the opportunity to organize with them and learn the city of Baltimore and the state of Maryland because I was a transplant from the Midwest. And then it came this point in time where I was looking at all of these systems, looking at all of the things we were working on and wanted to figure out some ways to be able to make some broader systemic change and learn some of the systems that were really frustrating my students. 
So I went to law school at Maryland in their extended program and then also took a job at Teach for America in working in fundraising and working in development where I got this great opportunity to thrown in to learn how does fundraising work, Um, which was something that I had not done outside of being a kid in school fundraisers or helping some friends on campaigns and getting to kind of see what they did to be able to raise money. But I was no way an expert on what does development work even mean. I just knew the mission of the organization and really liked it. And so I was getting to tell that story. And in that work, I've often told people that you get to learn the landscape of power in a city incredibly well when you are fundraising in that place, because a lot of the ways that decisions are made around money end up moving down to how decisions are made around policies, how decisions are made around who gets to make decisions. And all of that flows through this network of who has money and can resource, especially a lot of the nonprofits that exist in a space. So then whose work gets valued and is able to continue and is lifted up as a model of where the city is going. And that influences a lot of policy. And so I got to learn the power map of Baltimore through that space of understanding how organized money worked in Baltimore. And in that work was also doing just a lot of civic organizing with friends and trying to change laws and policies. And so when an opportunity at Leadership for Educational Equity came up to be able to start a region in Baltimore and actually do organizing work and actually make sure folks are going into high impact policy and advocacy roles and that folks are getting into elected office, we can build an ecosystem. That was really exciting because I felt like I'd learned a lot about kind of how the systems were working and what I thought was working really well in the areas where I thought we needed to do better. Um, and so I got to do that work and lead the region locally for about six years until then transitioned into getting to lead a portfolio of regions and support folks across the country and figure out how to do that work in lots of different cities and then moved into getting to think about our organizing work kind of wholesale um, all across the country and making sure that we have the resources and the capacity to be able to see change coming from organized people. But that change can never be possible without the ongoing thing of organized money. And one of the things that is trickiest in the organizing space and being able to sustain work, sustain campaigns and really build power is this space of where those two things hit together. So think about those topics a lot. Okay, I want to have you, I feel like the word organizing gets thrown around a lot. And sometimes, honestly, I feel like what they're describing is slightly different. So I would love it. Will you define what organizing means to you and to Lee? What does that look like? Yep. So organizing work is the work of being able to build power and shift power in communities by bringing together people collectively over a set of shared interests. But the most important interest there is around them being able to have the power to say, this is how our community should function and work in tension with folks who are in positional power. So elected leaders, people who are appointed to positions and folks who have organized money power, oftentimes private businesses or foundations, all of that kind of network of folks who we end up fundraising from. So like kind of organizing is at its best in working when all three of those kind of spaces of organized people, organized money, positional power are in tension with each other, but that tension is that healthy space of all exist in a place. And that power is not necessarily shared across them, but power exists in all of them. That's kind of the healthiest space of society for me. 
I love the way you explained that. I feel like that's really helpful. How much of this work or how transparent is the conversation around power in all of these pieces? You and I were talking a little bit. I mentioned there has been more transparent conversation in the nonprofit space recently about power and power dynamics. But talk to me a little bit about how that plays out in your work. Sure. So organized money is actually a concept that people might not recognize it from a language, but they know it when they see it. They can look around the place that they live. And if you ask them, well, who are some of the most powerful people? They will often mention kind of heads of businesses or they'll mention companies. Or if you live in a city that has a lot of kind of foundations and the philanthropic kind of spaces, people will mention those. And the way that you think about those spaces and their power is that they get to say, these programs are the ones that work. These people are the ones that we want to invest in. And that keeps those programs sustained because ultimately, yes, we do work that we care about and are mission aligned on, but people also do need to have a paycheck and do need to be able to sustain work to keep it going. From the organizing perspective, one of the things that can be actually really hard about the fundraising space within organizing is it is also true that while civic organizing is really important, it also does take people who are in professional roles to be able to kind of move um, different things and sustain that work. And organizing is grounded in shifting power. And so you are inherently existing in and going to systems that have existed for a long time and have worked for folks. And making an argument that, yes, is around like, hey, these laws and policies need to change and you might be in agreement on that. But ultimately, you're saying we're going to do this in a way that changes that system that works for you. And we want you to invest in that, which also happens for campaigns for candidates who are trying to really move and change how things have operated and worked and trying to have a different look to who is in power. They have to then make a proposition of... I know that this thing has worked for you and yet it's not working for everyone and hope that the other person at the other side of the table is invested in that same change, even if it means that power is going to shift and be shared and they may have more people being able to then make decisions, being able to then act in ways that are going to change things for a greater number of people. Wow. I really appreciate the way you framed that out. So when you all are making that case and whether or not you're the person consciously perhaps understands what is personally at stake for them in investing in organizing work, what is the case around representative leadership to the everyday person who's not already bought in or involved in that work and perhaps doesn't even recognize, maybe you even want to start with like the scope of the problem and then why it's so important that we're changing it and how that case is made. So when we start and look out at the landscape of leaders who are especially in those positions of power, we know that we do not have systems that are representative of the full diversity and slate of our country. When we kind of look at um, different percentages in particular fields that are really kind of important to people's lives, I like to go down to kind of the local level and look at like, okay, do folks look like the folks they're representing? And with our work at Lee, we oftentimes are supporting folks for school boards. 
it has only been in the last few years that we are starting to actually see more of a shift of school boards representing and looking like the student populations that are actually in their public schools. And that has long been this space of really being able to hold on to power and perpetuate a lot of systems that have been harmful for students of color as their populations continue to grow in public schools. And I also look at places like prosecutors' offices and those spaces where they are elected. The most recent numbers on prosecutors in the United States were elected is that 95% of them are white and 73% of them are white men. And if we look at the criminal justice system, that is not the makeup of the folks who are coming before judges and going through those prosecutorial systems and being harmed by systems for folks who aren't impacted by them on a day-to-day basis, don't come into the room necessarily with the experience of, these are folks who are in my community. I have a personal experience of family members, of close friends having been part of this legal justice system, and therefore not creating a system that is going to work for those communities. And when we see that happening, we end up perpetuating a lot of the racism, a lot of the poverty that has continued to go on in systems of oppression because the ones who are making decisions are saying, hey, this actually works for me. This system seems to work. It's fair. It's on its face because it's fair for them. So going to that idea of it's fair for them, one of the things that we talk about a lot in organizing is this idea of you have to locate where the self-interest is for someone. So we kind of talk about the spectrum of you don't want people to be totally selfish and only concerned with themselves and like only for me. You also don't want people to be totally in this space of myself does not matter. I'm only self-sacrificial because that is just a space of martyrdom. What you are trying to hit is this sweet spot of self-interest where people understand how their interests also sit in a community with other people. And when you start to talk with people and find, okay, what's our self-interest? Then you can start to figure out, okay, so how do we invest together in being able to change a system that maybe, even if it's working for you, is not working for these things or issues that you care about? And a lot of that comes from being able to be in community and relationship with folks. And that's part of why the fundraising process continues to be intensely relational and tends to still go to this space of needing to tell a story and paint a vision of what a thing is, but also asking a person questions about themselves so that you can actually tell a story and paint a vision that is within their self-interest. Ultimately, for most people, even if a system kind of work for them on paper, you're looking at them and the demographics and all this, and you're like, oh, there's not going to be a space where we're going to find any sort of common ground on this issue. Most people have a story of here's why the system or here's why this thing doesn't work for me or didn't work for somebody who I care about. And then it's the space of being able to broaden that out and connect your story to their story and hopefully find some ground on, yep, this is where we can invest together. Okay. 
<laughs> people are going to think I had you say a bunch of that stuff because it so aligns with how I teach fundraising in the nonprofit sector really around, especially what you said around the like mutual benefit piece. And I am trained in something called energy leadership. And there are these levels of energy and like catabolic energy, which is a really depleting energy. The lowest level of catabolic energy is martyrdom. The second lowest level of catabolic energy is like conflict, but it's I win. And so what you're saying, right? You don't want martyrdom. You don't want I win. You want to get up to this place, like as I talk about in these levels of leadership, where it's this mutual benefit sort of win-win. Now that comes with a belief that I think you and I share that the world can exist that way, that there is a world in which we can all win. And I think sometimes that belief, though, feels in conflict with many other people's beliefs, especially in a capitalist society, or people have one at the expense of others. And so it is so hard for them to shift their even belief system around a world could exist actually where I'm okay and you're okay and we can make these decisions together. What do you think about that? I think very, very similar spaces. So I'll I'll lay over another kind of thought from organizing, particularly broad-based organizing space and the Industrial Areas Foundation, but the world as it is and the world as it should be. And that organizing exists in this tension of understanding the world as it is, especially in a political space that is very zero sum. Somebody wins, somebody loses in lots of things. And yet trying to shift power so that we can create this world as it should be, where winning does not have to mean somebody losing. That winning, especially in a collective context where you are bringing lots of people together, having a shared interest, and then moving work forward from that space can also mean, hey, we are coming to these elected leaders and we are putting a demand and we're putting tension on those folks. But doing the thing that is the right policy decision also means deeper relationship with those leaders also means a win that those leaders can celebrate right along with and in community with other folks. And it can mean their ongoing space of getting to continue to lead because people are invested and have built a level of trust. And so there is this kind of space where we have to hold intention, the recognizing The world is it is. All of those things exist. And yes, it is possible to get to those wins on things that are in the world as it should be, but that a lot of those are going to be rooted then in relationship and having those hard conversations and being able to figure out what that space of mutual benefit and self-interest really is. You keep using the word systems. And I had a conversation with someone recently around the last 18 months. I'm sure if we tracked it on Google analytics or whatever, the term like systematic racism has been used more than we heard it before. But I don't think that a lot of people necessarily understand what that means. So they hear this term systematic racism being used all the time. They're starting to hear anti-racist work, all these other terms, but they don't necessarily understand maybe the intersection between them or even what systems are at play. I'm curious in as you guys do the systems level work, where's the intersection between that and like individual anti-racism work? It's one of those things that some of the kind of frameworks that we think about in using 
as we work with our members on the leadership development around helping them really understand what is racism when we're talking about it? What is this system structural sort of space? As one framework is the four faces of oppression. So helping folks understand racism from a space of internalized, which is like the experience of racism and therefore the ways that including people of color will end up acting in ways that perpetuate racist systems because it is what they've experienced and known. To interpersonal, which is the kind that seems to be really familiar for folks of this person or this group of people being acting in a racist manner toward a particular group of people to then that space of systemic where within like a particular law or policy where within like a particular way that we operate and do things are there baked in biases that are going to impact communities of color to then the space of structural how do those play off of each other and all of those systems come together to create this whole structural system around that kind of racism, that space of racism. I think one other thing that we have like started to layer on and that I've had in conversations with members is um, Ibram Kendi's work and kind of talking about how does racism come about. And he says that lots of people think that racism exists because of first starting with people having some ignorant ideas about other folks and then those developing into like a broader scale racist idea and then that turning out into discrimination in systems. So it starts like at an individual level and then ends up at a system. And he says, actually, no, it goes the other way around. That people with an interest to be able to do something to discriminate in some sort of way. And it doesn't even have to be like that their interest is discrimination, but the way that they would achieve it is through needing to do that discrimination. will then justify that through a set of racist ideas. And that then creates this space of people then having that ignorance because that's what the system around them is saying. So whenever we look at that from a space of schools, we have a long history of not wanting to really fund and resource schools in the ways that they need to be. So we start from this space of, well, we only want to give this much money in a budget. It doesn't have to be coming initially from that space of, oh, that's because we don't want to invest in communities of color that have been severely disinvested in for really long periods of time. It's saying, nope, if we're looking across our electorate, if we're looking across people in a community, we want to resource here and not resource here because we think that that will help our electoral gains. We think that that will help please the most people across the folks who we have to put. So you go there and you have that first decision about funding and we see severe funding imbalances in schools. But then we justify that by saying, well, why would we want to focus in on those schools in those urban or inner city communities because students there, it's been a waste. We haven't seen gains. We haven't seen the improvements in education. We haven't seen the real investment. And hey, did you know that families in a lot of those communities don't really care about education as much and that they are really not as invested. And so putting this money in there is going to continually be a waste. And then you get a whole lot of people who develop these ideas about places uh, across the country from where I live in Baltimore to places like Chicago, to communities in New York, to communities throughout the South um, that 
end up giving these ideas of, oh, well, yeah, but those families in those communities don't really care about education. And therefore, we don't have to invest as much. And therefore, it's fine if like we invest where education is really going to be valued. And that ends up perpetuating lots of laws and policies. And it becomes acceptable because it's less tuned to what people would say, oh, well, that's not about racism. That's just about the way things are. When all of it came from this place of making a decision about the system that absolutely had true racist impacts on people and then being able to describe that decision in ways that are going to continue to perpetuate really racist ideas. First T of Greater Akron needed to switch from an outdated donor management system to something more user-friendly. With Bloomerang, they found that and more. Executive Director Josh Smith commented, We love Bloomerang. It saved time. It's helped us raise more funds. By investing in a donor database that they actually loved using, First T of Greater Akron was able to raise more funds and continue creating lasting change in their community. To listen to the full interview with First T of Greater Akron, visit bloomerang.com backslash what the fundraising or click the link in the show notes. You know, it's interesting as I'm thinking about what you're saying, and I'm curious how that kind of meets up with this trend we see in the nonprofit sector all the time, where maybe it's mixed with that martyrdom energy, but like the white savior, like we know better energy. Like when you were talking before about representation on school boards, and I was thinking, I was like, gosh, like that seems so obvious to me that a school board should look the same as the student body it represents. Like that kind of just seems like a no brainer. And I'm like, I was thinking, I was like, but why doesn't that happen in addition to everything you just laid out and all those different power dynamics? And, but I wonder is another reason that it doesn't happen that way is because people believe that they know better than the local community when it comes to solving problems. How do those things intersect? The disengagement of we don't want to put money there anymore because it doesn't work. And the like, we know how to fix this problem and removing the decision-making and autonomy from community. Absolutely. I think another direction that that space of the ignorant ideas that are kind of bred out of discriminatory systems ends up being that even really well-meaning people go into spaces and say, well, this just needs a technical solution with expertise. And folks there would absolutely do this if they just knew better But because I've had the benefit of knowing all of these things, then I can come in and I can bring that expertise. And we end up creating a whole lot of spaces of policies that are well-meaning, but don't actually meet the needs of the folks who are in the community because there's a lot of solutions around things that nobody was asking for. And so I think of how many times like folks on Twitter post, like, who asked for this? And that is the experience of many folks of color and communities across the country where folks will come in and they're just like, oh, these are the projects that we are going to do. And this is the way we're going to fix it. And nobody was doing the relational work of saying, what would you actually define as the issue in your community? And building on the experience of people to say, and what do you think would work here to fix it? before coming to some different conclusions. And then what ends up happening 
is we end up perpetuating these systems where it is this almost caretaker sort of space of, I want to care for this community. I want to serve and work for this community as opposed to, I want to be a part of this community and have just as much skin in the game about whether or not these solutions actually work and whether or not people are feeling invested in them. And the way that we get to that shift of having people who are part of a community actually having the power to make those decisions is and really thinking about this representative model within our decision-making like spots and within our organizing and organized spaces. And they have to sit in kind of tension with each other there. I was really heartened um, earlier this summer and it was not necessarily like one-on, but watching Corey Bush at the Capitol who in the House of Representatives from St. Louis, first Black woman to hold that particular seat. And she was speaking of her experience being homeless and staging a sleep-in on the steps of the Capitol to get her colleagues to actually then focus on issues around housing as lots of COVID relief was going to be pulled back and there was real risk in a massive eviction crisis that we are hearing lots of news stories still on of we need to get that aid out the door. But the fact that she could tell a story of, I have been homeless. I know what this experience is. This is not a trivial thing for me of, I want to take care of people someday who might be homeless and do things for them. But no, no, I have been homeless and I know that the thing that is going to fix is to make sure that people have the money to be able to stay in their house is a different conversation than we would have been having if it were, I don't know what that struggle is, but I know it must be really hard. And have you read these 13 reports about homelessness and all of these things that it might ha- that might be able to fix it? Opposed to, no, no, the need that folks have right now is to have the money to be able to stay in the home that they are in. And can we just fix that and make sure it happens? I think what you're talking about is so critical. And the relationship between, I don't exactly know how to articulate this, but I'm going to (laughs) try. I talk in my work, in coaching work, a lot of the times people will say, is it bad that I did this thing? And I'm going to give a really like superficial example. Is it bad that I binge Netflix for three hours? And I'm like, well, we can't really evaluate the action alone. What drove the action? How did you feel after the action? How much consciousness was involved in the action? Did you say, it's going to feel really good for me to lay on this couch for three hours and watch Netflix? And then you did. And then you were like, yeah, I feel rejuvenated. Then there's nothing problematic about that action. But if you are avoiding some feeling that you have and you're trying to numb it down with three hours of Netflix, not consciously, you're just sitting there and then you end those three hours and you feel stressed and anxious, then okay, maybe the action was problematic. And I think what you're talking about, while that was a very superficial example, I think what you're talking about is a level of consciousness around participation that's really critical because when people just act from an initial feeling standpoint, especially if they haven't done a lot of unpacking around their unconscious biases, they're likely to take an action that then later they're like, well, I was doing a good thing. But it was coming from this place of pity and power and not partnership. And I think that is so like fundamentally rooted in the problem that you're talking about. 
Absolutely. Within the whole conversation that has been coming up, up around voting rights legislation right now, a lot of that space has been around, well, if the law isn't actually like specifically trying to harm this set of people, then is it really a problem if we can then say on the other end, its impacts were incredibly harmful to a group of people? Now, I absolutely do believe that a lot of voting like legislation that's around suppression is being passed with a discriminatory intent right now. But people are becoming far better at being able to cover that discriminatory intent. We don't always have the case out of North Carolina where literally legislators were in public basically saying, this will ensure that these folks won't be able to vote. We don't always have that. I mean, we still have it in levels that we shouldn't, but that is a lot of the intent. But then we're seeing a lot of pushes within the court sites right now of, well, do we get to look at this from an impact standard? Um, and this is across like lots of legal areas of discrimination. It's really important to be able to look at disparate impacts. Did this law, as written, even if it was written in language that's neutral, hit people differently? And are those impacts, are they actually like disparate, especially across race? So... I think we have a lot of folks who are basically operating in this way of, no, no, I'm doing things in neutral ways. I am doing things in ways that are, none of this could ever be construed as being harmful or discriminatory, but people don't know what they don't know or they do know it. And they're kind of ignoring the thing of, hey, here is this community that if I don't share background with, then I need to share relationship with. If I don't do those things, then I will probably put policies into motion that I don't even realize the ways that they could be harmful because I'm writing policies from my worldview. And as much as like I studied the law, but I could still only write laws that were around my own experience, around my own worldview of here's how things should work. So as much study as you have done, it can't counteract all of the years of experience about this is how things function and how they work and how they work for me. So we need that space of people really understanding their impacts. And we need that space of even more people coming from the experiences of the communities that they are actually from working in and serving in so that we can then see that relationship building and laws and policies that are passed that are reflective of the experiences of the folks who most need the changes in laws and policies right now. We could keep talking about this, I think, for a very long time. I'm interested in your perspective on, okay, so these problems are big. And I also think, going back to what you said a little bit ago, just around how much of this work is holding two truths at the same time and existing in a gray, gray space with a lot of hope and belief around what's possible, but oftentimes a lot of really challenging experiences in the day-to-day. And so what are some of the biggest barriers for individuals to engage in this process, particularly women or people of color, like in order to increase representation, there's the systemic issues that need to be addressed. And how can the collective we support individuals to be able to participate? And how does funding play into that? Absolutely. So as we think about folks who are coming at, especially the space of elected leadership, who are not the usual suspects of who's going to be running for office. One of the first things that I've noticed from campaigns is there is this shift of 
the language on that you are not doing this alone that we have to get really, really good at. Because for a lot of folks from communities of color who are running for office and for a lot of women, they do have to run this race that is about their name on a ballot and them being there. But also the way that we know that society functions, they're representative of all of these other folks. And so that's an, a whole additional set of pressure that comes with running for office when you are a woman and a person of color, but leaning into that and really building communities around those candidates that support them fully is super important. One of the things I think about a lot is that in training folks to run for office and the fundraising, we use a lot of the terminology of the circles of benefit for fundraising, and that's used in nonprofit work as well. Of You start in the center with yourself and you basically work out into these concentric relationship circles. So you have to ask for money first from your friends and family. And that should be a big chunk of your money coming in is what we say. And then you're going to move out to people who are acquaintances and that sort of space and then move out to people who you share ideology with moving out to people who are trying to back a winner and then like getting out to like people who are trying to take out your opponent and that sort of thing of like raising money. Circles of benefit is incredibly smart in helping people visualize kind of thinking about fundraising asks and it is incredibly important for everybody to ask their friends and family. But we are perpetuating some systems when we tell people that that's the way that we fundraise because we are assuming a certain level of wealth within that first like set of circles of your friends and family. And what if you cannot raise a high percentage of the budget that you need to be able to run for office and win from that circle because they will give you everything they can but that number is small. So we have to think about, okay, so how are we then creating the communities to be a closer circle around the values of getting more women and people of color into office so that we can come in even closer to those candidates and make sure that they have the resources to be able to get their message out, to not have to struggle so much within the campaign space and do things on a shoestring budget and not be able to talk to as many voters as they can. Because that's what money means in an election. It means the ability to be able to talk to voters. And so we have to shift our conceptions and not build so many frameworks on the ways that elections have worked in the past and instead figure out how do we build better and stronger communities and put our own resources into the game on those fundraising pieces because candidates will go through and they will do their call lists. I have sat with candidates doing that work and I have watched folks, I have watched especially women of color call through the list and like it is painful whenever they're asking some of their families for money because they know, yes, this person will give it to me and they will do it with all the love in the world. And I know the things that they may be sacrificing for this next week because they are giving me this amount of money. And so how do we make sure that we are then saying, nope, in this new paradigm, we're going to build systems where we will put in the investment because we believe in a world where more candidates of color are in elected office where more women are in elected office. And we believe in the outcomes of that. We believe those are in our self-interest. So for folks who have means, they will do far more donating into those races, even if they don't necessarily know that person, even if that gift is not going to mean that they're going to become your best friend in your open ear. But instead, that gift is going to mean that they're able to talk to more voters and ideally be able to make better decisions when they get into office because of their lived experience. I could not agree with that more. And I it actually aligns with how I teach fundraising because there's a similar thing that happens in non 
nonprofit often where people, when they don't feel like their immediate network, everyone tells people you're starting your nonprofit, start with friends and family rounds. And it drives me bananas because that is immediately going to create sort of problems in how nonprofits are formed. But I think what you're talking about is alignment. You start with alignment, which is what I teach. And it's like finding the people. When you were sharing this concentric circles, part of me was like, man, start with people who are trying to unseat the other person. <laughs> like, like they're so aligned with you, especially when we think about things from that mutual benefit space. If we think about it, and I mean, no, I would start with the value aligned people, but I do see that as like a low hanging fruit opportunity because there's this real mutual benefit. There's a like to engaging folks in that conversation. And so I really like how you wound that back and said, okay, when we look at these sort of old models of doing these things, the system is in here too, you know? So it's like, how do we start to think differently about how things can work so that we're addressing these issues at the root causes? Do you see a lot of folks who are interested in being more engaged, but they're like, I just can't make those phone calls. Like I could do everything else, but like, can someone else make those phone calls? Is that a thing? All the time. Yeah. So (laughs) can I make it over text? Yeah. How about emails? <laughs> a Facebook message? Because <laughs> it's an incredibly vulnerable spot to sit and make phone calls. And especially with the conception of call time where I'm going to carve out two to three hours. I'm just going to sit working through a list where a lot of people are going to tell me no, or they'll tell me later, or they won't give me the amount of money that I was hoping for. And you're supposed to be hitting a certain amount at each of those call time windows in each hour. And that is incredibly hard. And that's where also that community space comes in because it is harder for some folks. And so having somebody else there who is going to pick you up through that incredibly vulnerable time while you are doing it, especially as you're building the habits of doing it, is so important. Call time coaches and having a friend who will sit there next to you in call time, some of the most invaluable things in campaigns that people just don't even think about. You need somebody to make a funny face with you when you're sitting on the phone and getting another no and wanting to hang it all up and just be like, nope, this isn't for me. And having people see on the front end that they can build in those supports to running for office is really, really important. And then making sure I'm really glad that I work at an organization where a lot of times we've built in a lot of those supports and we've got folks who coach people through call time. We've got people who will actually sit with them through those really hard times. Oh my gosh, the nonprofit sector needs that too. We need call time coaches. (laughs) I mean, it is, it's so hard. You know, I think sometimes I hear fundraisers say, I feel so overwhelmed. I'm feeling so exhausted all the time. And I'll have people come to me and they're like, I'm not even overworking like time-wise, right? They're like, I even reduced my hours to 32 hours a week and I'm still so exhausted all the time. And I think it so much of that has to do with that fundraising is a numbers game that inherently involves a lot of rejection. And I think for small organizations, just like with political candidates, it's so personal. It feels so personal. And that is just a really exhausting place to be in. I think unless you're able to really shift your mindset around 
this is a practice of organizing and that this is about bringing people in and giving people an opportunity to engage and make a difference. And the thing I so appreciate about Lee is that while I know your success rate with first-time candidates is so much higher, I think your sort of framework and expectation setting around the purpose of campaigns is just something, a big reason why I wanted to do this series is for folks who are not in your world to recognize that like, campaigns are about so much more than the winning and losing at the end of the campaign. And from an investment standpoint, we need as the general public to think differently about giving, because I think really getting to know all of you, I was like, do I want to give? Because are they going to really win? And then it's like, wait, why have I been, I think we've just been trained to think that way. But learning about how much happens within a campaign, the value that's created, the organizing that's happening, and realizing, I think sometimes there's this perception that the like organizing bodies within community are the only things organized. And so they feel like a nice to have. And I think the thing that people need to recognize is actually things are already organized in this power structure. And we just don't see it happening because they're in positions of power and the web has been created. And so when we're organizing in community, it is to address something already organized that is not working for everyone, that is disenfranchising people, that is harming community. And so it's not some like extra thing. Absolutely. It is always... I think we talk around of like the power mapping space and then dismantling the power map. You're going to try to shift the thing that already exists, but literally have been in front of whiteboards creating that web with people and saying, okay, so then who here? And then what, how is this decision made and how does that work? And it's this big web. And then when you start into the organizing space, you're basically saying, okay, so then how do we shift this? Where do we go in first? How do we move piece by piece and being able to change this? so that it operates well for more people. And that's a lot of what campaigning is too. It's being able to say, okay, what are the current votes that exist out there? Who's been voting? Is it everybody who lives here who has access to be able to do that? How do we create more access to be able to have more people having a seat at the table? Then how do we organize those folks to then be able to come in and really shift and move a system of power? And so, yeah, I think you've said it well of, there's a web that exists And if people want to be a part of saying, I think it should look different, then the way to get into that is to get into community with other people to give in spaces where they are in a shared values alignment space with candidates. And it's going to actually change what the system looks like and to be a part of that collective people power to be able to shift that power. Well, thank you. I could talk to you forever, but tell folks how they can find you, how they can connect with you. And then I like to invite every guest at the end to share a nonprofit that's near and dear to their heart for folks to go check out and give if they can. So I'll make that invitation to you as well. Wonderful. Well, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Taylor M. Stewart. And so that would be the way to follow my musing. Mostly retweets, though, honestly. (laughs) (laughs) I operate in this space on Twitter. Long time lurker, a few time Twitter. Uh, (laughs) 
And as I think about nonprofits, um, near and dear to my heart, um, and I actually get the opportunity to serve on their board and their work right now is around Strong Schools Maryland, which is a group who just really helps spearhead a campaign across the entire state to change the funding formula to do some more of this equity-based work. And they are now making sure that the implementation actually looks to serve the communities that it's geared toward of communities of color, English language learners, students who are growing up in low income environments and just making sure that our state's education system that is vaunted oftentimes as being the best in the country or one of the best in the country actually is that for all kids. So Strong Schools Maryland is where I'd say support. Awesome. I'll make sure all the links are below as well. Thank you so much for joining me today and having this conversation. This is great. Thank you so much. Wow. There is so much in here about how to focus on community-centric work and how important it is for us to look into our own beliefs and biases before they trickle down negatively into the programs we create. I so appreciate everything Taylor shared related to understanding the power dynamics around us, systematic biases, and how to give power to local communities. To get all of the detailed show notes from this episode, head on over to MalloryErickson.com backslash podcast. You'll find more information there about Taylor's incredible work, as well as how you can connect with her and other folks at Lee. I'm so grateful to everyone at Leadership for Educational Equity. Like them, I believe our country needs diverse leaders like you in all halls of power. I appreciate their commitment to supporting civic leaders in stepping up to fight injustice. If this series has piqued your interest about getting involved in your local leadership, I highly encourage you to get in touch with the amazing folks over at Lee. Lastly, as always, thank you for spending this time with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, we would love it if you would give it a rating and review and share it with a friend. I'm so grateful for all of my listeners and the good hard work you're doing to make our world a better place. If you miss me between episodes, stop by and say hello on Instagram under what the fundraising underscore. Have a great day and I'll see you next week. Hey you, I hope you're loving all the free value you're getting right now from our guest. And speaking of free value, I've raised millions in the nonprofit space without sacrificing my integrity or my alignment. And I'm sharing how I did it in my free webinar, how to harness the power of prioritization to raise more without burning out. Go to MalloryErickson.com backslash workshop to register for the free training right now. I cannot wait to see you there.